This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. When it comes to the Attorney General's office here in Rhode Island, there's a lot that flies under the radar. And sometimes those matters are, at least collectively, just as big as the major issues that sort of grab headlines and a lot of attention. And today on the Bartholomew Town Podcast, Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Narona comes back to B-Town to kind of break down some of the big developments in 2022, both those that are headline-grabbing and then also some of those that have flown under the radar. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you for another edition of Rhode Island's podcast of record, Bartholomew Town. Remember to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Bill Bartholomew. Go ahead and join the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group. Follow, rate, and review wherever you're listening right now. And if you want to support the show for as little as $3 per month, head to patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town, or click the support link wherever you're listening right now. You'll get exclusive content like this month, audio of a speech I gave to the Providence Rotary Club a few weeks ago. That's patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town. Recording in progress. By the way, I'm, I'm sure you have some insight into this, that recording in progress announcement that must have emanated from a lawsuit, right? Uh, well, you know, you can't record somebody without their consent. Right. Uh, some states have two-party consent. One other states have one-party consent. Um, you know, it may or may not be a function of the wiretap statute, but um, I'm very familiar. I'm very familiar with that from the federal and state work I've done with wiretapping. It really sets up. So you've got to make sure that when you're recording a conversation, the other person uh, knows about it unless you have a court order that allows you to do it. Um, and so that can come up in the context of, you know, you're trying to record a conversation in a public place. Um, you know, somebody else being captured on the recording um, where you don't have court authorization to capture their voice or what they're saying, but you have authorization to capture what the other person does. So yeah, anyway, we can talk about that for a long time, but I'm sure that's not what you're interested in. Yeah, no, it's just interesting. At some point during the year that all of a sudden that announcement began on Zoom when you'd hit record, whereas for the vast majority of the lockdown, I never heard that. And it was kind of like, okay, something something percolated or they or perhaps they got ahead of it at zoom and said all right we, we better watch out yeah the lawyers probably caught up with the uh the lawyers probably caught up with what was going on and realized hey you know we better do this before you know there's some problems so, yeah <laughs> well it's been a busy year in your office there's been a lot of um major things and also things that fall underneath the headlines so to speak i guess just kind of looking back on it here we are it's basically december um Mm -hmm. How would you categorize 2021 from the perspective of the attorney general's office? You know, Bill, I think, you know, one thing that comes to mind is it was, this has been such an unusual almost two years for all of us, you know, in Rhode Island, across the country and around the world because of COVID. And yet in some ways, the work of the office seems to be back to normal in the sense that, um, you know, we're back in the office. There's a lot going on. I like to think we're impacting, you know, people in a lot of ways. I mean, if you, you were to ask me the things that that really stand out to me, you know, starting with the civil division, you know, so much of this past year has been spent on healthcare. Um, you know, certainly, you know, what's been in the news lately is the application by Karen New England and Lifespan Merge. But what really took up a big chunk of the first half of the year was the change of ownership of uh, Roger Williams Hospital, Fatima Hospital owned by a private equity firm out on the West Coast. Uh, and, and really the work of this office, uh, which I think was really critical to make sure that um, Roger Williams and Fatima are well positioned for at least the next five years, meaning 
that there's no danger that there'll be an insolvency there. And I really think that that was, that was a real possibility 18 months, 24 months down the road. We didn't act when we did. So healthcare is really, has really been where we've been spending a lot of time. Of course, you know, Vice Mayor Karen Wingo, we've been working on that for the better part of the year. We also were, you know, um, involved in the insurance rate um, uh, changes, uh, opposed those um, from the Office of the Health Insurance Commissioner. So healthcare uh, has really been been one of the major focuses of the civil division. Of course, we've been involved in a lot of the vaccine and mask mandate litigation, you know, defending the state in those cases. So you know, healthcare has really has really um, uh, really been a priority for us, and, and frankly, a necessary application of a lot of resources. Yeah, in just one area. Yeah, and and certainly that's that's right at the forefront of of the conversation in a lot of different sectors. Going back to the former, the first thing you had mentioned. The escrow, um, I, I guess you'd almost call it like a parachute, like a safety net for in the event of insolvency. I don't remember offhand. I probably should have had it in front of me the exact dollar amount in escrow that the state has. But do you get the sense that in terms of um, solvency, that issue has been resolved, that we're not going to see massive, we're not going to see hospital closures, essentially in layman's terms, hospitals going out of business um, as a result of that acquisition that you named the, fir- the, the, the first element of our, of our discussion here. Yeah. So, so really what that was about, though, was this. So the company that owns Fatima and Roger Williams owned or owned at the time 15, 16, 17 hospitals around the country. And they were um, the company that owned them, including our Rhode Island hospitals, was a private equity firm out in California called Leonard Green. Leonard Green owned 60 percent of all those hospitals. And then there were two individuals who owned 40 percent. And so Leonard Green, again, a private equity firm, they own places like the Container Store. They owned um, Dick's Sporting Goods for a time. You know, they're not in in the business of healthcare. They're a private equity firm. Their whole uh, their whole mo is to make money for their investors. And so, in any event, they wanted to transfer their ownership interest to those two individuals, Mr. Lee and Mr. Topper. The problem for me was that that company uh, was really in a much worse off financial position than they were when uh, even a, a few years ago. So what had happened was they had taken out a lot of loans and returned those loans to those investors, the proceeds of the loans to their investors, and then mortgaged the company that owned the hospital. So the, the company that owned the hospitals called Prospect went from being in the black by, by some amount of money to being you know, nearly a billion dollars or a billion dollars in the red. And what that meant for Rhode Island hospitals was this, that that company was propping up our Rhode Island hospitals because they have a a difficult payer mix, meaning they have a lot of Medicare and Medicaid patients. And so as a result, they needed that company to reimburse them or support them and pay their operating expenses and make the necessary capital invest- investments to allow those hospitals to perform at a really high rate. So they can do that if they're a strong company. They can't do it if they're a weak one. So now what we had was a weak company. And to me, what that was about was this, that that private equity firm sees the storm coming, sees the storm coming and wants to get off the boat before the boat hits the storm. And I was not about to let them do that till we had the kind of money in hand, in escrow, that would make sure that those Rhode Island hospitals, Fatima and Roger Williams, could meet their operating expenses and make the necessary capital expenditures. And so as a condition of that change of ownership, I required them to put that money in escrow. Here's the other thing. The other thing is that, that those uh, hospitals, our Rhode Island hospitals, uh, could be sold to pay off some of that indebtedness owned by the, na- owned by the national company. I was really worried about that. There was a $100 million note coming due uh, this coming August. Um, and so to me, the time to act was last uh, spring, early summer, before the private equity firm got off the boat. We wanted to make sure that we dealt with this while they were still on the boat 
so we could maximize the safety net for our hospital. So, you know, I think critical moment for this administration, uh, not only this year, but but over the first nearly three years of it, uh, that we took a stand, an important one in healthcare, to make sure that Rhode Islanders will have those hospitals that, you know, to be able to go and, and get healthcare there for the foreseeable future. We've uh, gone pretty deep on on a few episodes here on this show over the course of the year on the the three part uh, conglomeration, if you will, that may come together: uh, Brown University, Care New England lifespan, and that is moving along rapidly. Your gut on that right now, without giving away proprietary information, does that feel like it's it's heading to a point where it's going to happen in twenty twenty two? Well, there certainly will be a decision in twenty twenty two, Bill. I can't really forecast what that decision is going to be. Look, there are a number of criteria under the Hospital Conversion Act that need to be satisfied for us to approve it. And there are really three options. One is not to approve it at all, not to approve it at all. The other is to approve it as they proposed it. And the other, and the third option is to approve it uh, with conditions, meaning you have to do certain things to make sure that this is acceptable. I mean, the reality is it's going to be either one, it's going to either be no approval at all, or it will be approval with conditions. It's really rare that we ever approve anything without conditions because we want to make sure that there are guidelines in place to make sure that whatever happens is in the best interest of our dialers. Look, there, there's a, there's a, you know, the 500 pound elephant in the room is this is a lot of market share uh, in one, in one place. Um, and if you really think about this, you know, I asked recently, well, you know, people think of partners in, in Boston as having a lot of market share. You know, when you ask them, well, how much market share do you think partners, or it's called something else now, but everybody yeah. knows. You know, how much market share does partners have? Well, I don't believe it exceeds 30%. So when the big dog in Massachusetts has only 30%, I mean, we're talking about 80% potentially here, you recognize that that has to be addressed. Now, whether it can be addressed or not is one of the things that we're going to have to wrestle with between now and when our decision is due. Um, and, and so that's one issue. And there are others, you know, things that go to quality and access and affordability is kind of bound up in this in this uh, market share issue. So there's just a lot for us to address uh, along with the Department of Health. And we're in that process right now. I will say this, that whatever our decision is, it's really incumbent on us. And I'm committed to explaining it in a way that is both detailed, and thorough, uh, and so that Rhode Islanders really understand the decision we made and why we made it and why we think that that decision, regardless of what it is, is in the best interest of the people of the state. Right. Because then there are some who would say, OK, if this gets approved with even just as currently constituted, then South County Hospital, perhaps they can be absorbed or somehow an acquisition can be made of Westerly Hospital from the Yale group, so on and so forth. All of a sudden, it's 95 percent under this one conglomerate. But that probably is unlikely to happen. A, just a total washout monopoly that that, that seems like that's not going to happen, I would assume. Well, look, you know, there's no question that when you have a lot of market power in one place, that there's a potential for it to be anti-competitive. And, and competition, you know, means a lot of things, right? It's not only cost, it can be about quality. It can be, look, if, if you've got two people competing with each other, you're going to be at your best, right? It, it's, you know, whether that be from a customer service perspective or it be from a, from a, uh, from a performance perspective, you know, competition, I believe, in, in, any, in any sector uh, builds quality. So you have to you have to recognize that when you're putting this much market share together, potentially, that there are things you're going to need to address, whether they can be addressed or not, is the ultimate question. And it's something that we are going to uh, be deciding over the next, uh, you know, two, three months or so, 120 days from uh, November, uh, November 16th, I believe, November 17th. Hey, everybody. Well, we are quickly approaching the end of 2021. Can you believe it? I certainly am having a hard time wrapping my head around it. But you know what that means. A couple of things. Number one. 
Tis the season, the holiday season. Number two, B-Town will be taking a few weeks off, as has been the case the past few years around the holidays, around the end of the year, and then the beginning of January before we begin season five, 2022, our coverage of the 2022 elections, and so much more. Thank you all so much for all of your support. Now, don't miss coming up in a few weeks the B-Town recap episodes. I'm going to do an episode where I run through the best of our well over 100 podcasts here this year. Plus, we're going to have our usual roundtable episodes this year, two of them. One, the year in arts, and the other, the year in politics, news, media, and so forth. So stick around. Stay tuned for those. As always, thanks for your support of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Another area that is certainly near and dear to my heart, I believe yours as well, is a Jamestown, James tonight, I don't know if that's the right term, but we'll, we'll use it, is coastal access, whether it's Champlain's Marina or just general shoreline access. There's been a lot of citizen activity around this. There have been some sort of, um, uh, I guess you would say, protests or, or people who are challenging um, understanding of legal parameters or pushing legal parameters. Where does that sort of sit in your office's priorities and and some of the outcomes that we saw this year? And I think back to Champlain's out on Block Island. That's a that's a significant decision. Yeah, look, I I think uh, I think uh, though that the overall perspective I wanted to bring to the civil division was we needed to be more active in the uh, in the offensive space, meaning uh, well, getting out on offense. So in healthcare, we needed to be more diligent, more thorough, more active. We needed to take more aggressive stands where that was in the best interest of the people of the state. The same is true in the environmental space. And that that could be with respect to polluters. It could be with respect to public access. It could be with, with respect to regulatory decisions that, that aren't being conducted in a way that I think not only comports with the law, but again, it's not in the best interest of Rhode Island. So if you start with you know shoreline um, access, there are really two things, uh, two kind of parts of that. One is called horizontal, virtuous horizontal access. So as you're walking along the shoreline, how far up on the beach can you go? So let's say you're walking parallel to the shore. You know, you're walking, and take a good example, first or second beach uh, uh, in Newport. You know, that's obviously publicly owned, but let's assume you were walking along the shoreline with your feet in the water. How far, and that was private land behind you, you know, not, not first or second beach. How far up on the dry sand can you go? That's called horizontal access. You know, where does the where does the public have a right to walk along the shoreline as they're walking parallel to the water? The other, the other concept is vertical access, which is how do you get to the water in the first place? How do I go from the street through whatever, the, the dunes, the grass, the whatever it is, the parking lot to get onto the shoreline so now I can walk along it, or sit there, or fish or whatever it is. And so uh, the horizontal access is what's being debated right now by a study group uh, from the General Assembly, which is, you know, that law is frankly not very clear. You know, it's it's uh, the Constitution provides that Rhode Island shall have shoreline uh, access horizontally, but where that line is uh, has been the subject of some confusion, and that's and that is we're involved in that, and that is something that I assume will be clarified over the next several years. One place where we have been very active is in vertical access. So how do you get there in the first place? There's a uh, there's a spot in Newport called Lee's Wharf where we've worked hard to reestablish full public access there. There was another site in Warwick where we've worked with CRMC. Uh, again, as in Lee's Wharf, CRMC has been a good partner in this particular space um, to gain access there. We also worked hard to make sure that the end of Public Street, ironically, the end of Public Street, yeah. Public Street, you couldn't reach uh, the water. And so we worked hard with CRMC to make sure 
that was designated as a public right away and then took steps to bring down fences and other obstructions so the public could reach that. So that, that vertical access is something we're working with CRMC to identify. There are 222, maybe 223 now, designated rights of way already designated by the CRMC, but many of them are blocked. And so what we've, what we've done is identified sort of the top 10 and start working on those top 10 to get them unblocked. Lee's Wharf was a big one, obviously, because Newport is an area where sometimes access to the harbor front can be limited by so much uh, private activity down there, restaurants and that kind of thing. That Lee's Wharf was something we're able to get to get done in, in recent months um, for the benefit of the public. But that is no question of priority. Uh, access, pollution, um, and then making sure that regulatory bodies, as in, you know, for example, you brought it up, to, it, it's a great one, uh, the Champlain's case uh, on Block Island, making sure that our regulatory bodies, that when they're making findings and allowing marina expansion that is going to impact the public, that they do that in a way that is legitimate, that can be reviewed by a court, and, and we can make sure that it complies with the law. So it is definitely a priority of this administration. What are some of the other major developments this year from your from your office that may have flown under the radar that weren't necessarily picked up by the media, but were, you know, either personal breakthroughs on, from from your goals and, and your perspective or or things that, you know, just will resonate going forward in into 2022, 2023 in terms of, of your track and where um, almost like developing your office's legacy, so to speak? Yeah, look, I think you know a lot of it goes back to making sure that that civil division is out on offense and, and, and representing the people of the state really well. You know, we have a lead uh, lead paint initiative uh, that we started to protect children. Five hundred children in Rhode Island that are lead poisoned every year. A lot of that comes from the, the uh, from the apartments or the homes are living in, uh, where the landlords have not taken the necessary remediation steps. Sometimes for decades, so that there's a cycle of children that are living in those. Those apartments year after year after year, different children that are being lead poisoned because that remediation doesn't take place. We've been working really hard to bring action to lawsuits against landlords that for many, many years have just not done what's necessary to protect children. And look, protecting children against lead paint is not difficult. It's not incredibly expensive either. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, uh, men or women in hazard suits and hundreds of thousands of dollars. It can be done for a few thousand dollars just to get that lead dust, uh, you know, off the surfaces and away from those kids. So, you know, that may be something that flies a little bit under the radar, but when it's 500 kids a year that are being poisoned, um, you know, in our state, that can be completely avoided if, if someone just took action. I'm really proud of that work by the, um, you know, by the uh, by the uh, civil division. You know, we have some, some I think, really compelling new consumer protection um, work going on, um, sort of yet to be announced, I think, over the next few months. But really, they have really stepped up their game. We're much more active now uh, in the um, public utility space. You know, really, uh, uh, you know, frankly, getting involved with um, things like the sale of National Grid to PPL, that proposal that's coming up, really engaged there. With the uh, C3 in the Port of Providence, the expansion of the natural gas facility there, really engaged there. So that work, that work you know, has, has I believe, uh, will really have an impact. On the criminal side, the criminal division side, which is frankly, I often lead with a civil division because sometimes it is, uh, it does fly under the radar screen. Most people think of us on the criminal side. Look, the work that's being done in that criminal division is is, um, uh, is really terrific. You know, we are really are pivoting to focus on people that are really driving violence in our urban core. You know, you you can do um, 
You can do criminal work in two ways, in my view. One is, if you literally sit in this building at 150 South Main Street, the police will bring you case after case after case after case. And you can take those cases and assign them out to your prosecutors without any sort of strategic thinking as to which ones are having more of an impact on public safety than others and treat them all the same way. To me, that, that fails to recognize that some threats are greater than others. So you have to spend less time on those threats and mitigate them less. And you're wasting your prosecutor's time on cases that are not as impactful. What am I talking about? Things like simple possession of drug cases. You know, there are no victims in those cases other than the people that are using the narcotics themselves. So if you can get those cases into some place like our diversion court and get them dealt with quickly, get those people into treatment, and then focus your prosecutor's time on violent crime as we've been doing, you're going to have a better impact. You know, we started this initiative with the Providence Police Department. It started about a year ago, um, kind of built it slowly. Really grateful for Providence's leadership in this area where we are identifying threats to public safety and using um, proactive resources uh, to identify them, hopefully before they shoot somebody. Look, if, if we if somebody shoots and kills somebody and we are solving that murder and then prosecuting that murder, you know, that's doing justice. But in a sense, we've already failed because someone is dead. You know, someone's been injured, someone's been shot. The goal is, and it should be, to identify shooters before they shoot somebody and get them off the street. And the way that we're doing that is we've, we've uh, started an initiative here at the office with Providence, we've recently added Central Falls and Pawtucket to, uh, I've sworn in uh, uh, detectives from each of those uh, three agencies. We're working with ATF, we're also working with my own investigators to identify these shooters we're bringing some technology uh, and data analysis to the table. We've already had some success with a number of cases. I expect we'll see more. And that's exactly the kind of proactive um, proactive uh, uh, law enforcement uh, that we need to be doing. And again, also recognizing, also recognizing that when people are getting out of the system, we got to keep them out. And so to me, you know, we're going back in, in other words. And so when you paid your debts aside, the last thing you want is people showing back up on a courtroom calendar. Some point. That is just adding to the no, no overall number of cases that we've got going. We've got to address that as well. And we're doing some good, strong work there too. Yeah. So the work, the work in the criminal division is strong. I will say one thing that is not addressed a lot, Bill, are the number of uh, child sexual assault cases that we are that we're seeing. You know, we've charged 400 of those cases over the last five years. That's an incredible number. I mean, think about that for a minute. 400 children in the state of Rhode Island have been sexually assaulted by an adult. You have 10 lawyers in the office out of 70 prosecutors doing those kinds of cases. You know, you know, we are effective in doing them. Those are really uh, strong prosecutors who do great work. What worries me is the lack of um, or the dearth of resources around a support structure for those children. You know, you can see it all over the media reporting about the lack of behavioral health resources for children. Um, including children that are sexually assaulted. And that is such a key step to getting them back uh, to good health, both mental and physical. And that's one of the things that really worries me. You know, it's tragic we have to deal with these cases. We're handling them as prosecutors. But the larger issue of how do we bring those victims back to a state of well-being is something that concerns me very much. Yeah, I'm always startled by the, the amount of um, press releases that I get that, that, that detail uh, in, in sometimes graphic nature, the the perpetrators of these child uh, sexual assaults against children here in Rhode Island, and you, and I'm reading them, and you see everyone from age 18 through 70 something as listed as as uh, those who are charged, and it's it's disturbing. I mean, what a what a disturbing trend 
Um, but it's obviously positive that they're being charged and investigated and so on and so forth. That's a huge breakthrough. Yeah, look, and look, I was a young-ish prosecutor here back in the uh, you know, mid to late 90s, sent out to Washington County. We had a steady stream of those cases down there. This is not a new problem. What's really important is that, you know, children are encouraged, you know, to report child sexual abuse, that people who are aware of it come forward and report it, that they be well prosecuted. But even when we're talking about a sexual assault of a child, we always start from the, from the, from the, with the concept, what's best for this child? We build a support team around that child from the Auburn Center at Hasbro Children's Hospital, just does great work with children. Day one, DCYF, the local or state law enforcement agencies that, that's involved. It's called a multidisciplinary approach. What we really do is try to figure out what's best for this child. Look, I, I, I've sat with six, eight, 10 year old children that have been sexually assaulted and, and try to determine whether that child can testify before a grand jury or, or a court. And, and, and that's just, it's heartbreaking to begin with, but it can be a very difficult circumstance for a child. No question about it. Last question. And it's pretty, pretty straightforward one. Keeping it moving in 2022, are we, uh, are we going to see a Nerona 2022 campaign sign uh, going up somewhere? <laughs> like, are, you, are you running? Are you going to be back in, yeah, I'll be, in business? I'll be again, though, yeah. Of course, you yeah. Know, signs are in the garage, and uh, at some point <laughs> I'll have them out there again. But yeah, look, I, I really love this work. Um, and you know, when you when you you step into this job, you know, do you know that there are things that you've got to get done, and you've got to do them well. But there's also a canvas that you can paint on. You know, you can you can start to drive the office in, in certain ways and, and and frankly, you know, build on what's already here. I think every attorney general has to do that. And I really love that opportunity over the last three years. I'm really grateful to the voters for giving me the opportunity to serve in the first place. As you know, I've been I've been doing this now for a really long time. I'd like to have one more crack at it and, and, and finish the job, if you will. I think again, I think if you can build a place that when the next attorney general comes in, you know, they can they can take the keys and it's ready to roll and they want to change it or build on it, you know, that's an opportunity for them. But but that work is so rewarding. And, and I really, again, I see it both in sort of the more strategic approach in the criminal division and on the in the civil division, again, getting us out on offense. And we're a really good government defense firm. You know, we can represent the state well, policy choices by the governor of the General Assembly toward actions brought against state workers. We do that really well. We need to do that really well. And it's a talented group. But we also have this capacity to get out on offense, environment, consumer, healthcare. We're building that. It's come a long way. Really looking forward to finishing that job. Attorney General Peter Narona, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. Good to see you. Likewise. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.